Welcome to Ethics with Maury on ReachMDXM. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard. The art of communication is important in the modern medical setting, as our role of doctor has changed from the traditional paternal figure to that of respecting the patient's autonomy. Our guest is Avram Kraft, Associate Professor of Clinical Surgery at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University. He is also the founder of the Center for Compassion and Medical Care, an educational center for health professionals to elevate the level of caring communication and ethical awareness in Evanston, Illinois. Dr. Kraft, you've had a special interest, I know, through the years in doctor-patient relationships and the art of communication, something that many physicians feel has, uh, is not being taught in medical school. In your previous life, you were a general surgeon. What exactly led to this transition in your career path? Well, first of all, Maury, thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this experience. I have had an interest in how we communicate with each other as human beings probably since I was a child. But I think the formulation of needing to think about it in a more conscious way rather than assume that people know how to talk to each other in a professional sense that bears on medical matters became apparent to me when I was a student and I went on clinical rounds and observed how people talked to each other on formal rounds as they were in those days and how communication took place with patients. And I was appalled, actually, from one experience that's remained a signal experience in my life, where we went into a ward service, and the attending physician, this was a male ward service, the attending physician came to the bedside without introducing himself, pulled the sheets back from this particular male patient who was clinically jaundiced, and proceeded to uncover him, including his undergarment, and made a a comment about a stain on his underwear. And I was overwhelmed at how callous the communication was that involved the most important person, who was the patient lying in bed. So that was sort of like a signal experience that set the ball in motion. But with that uh, came an interest in wanting to evolve a means by which I could share my ideas with a broader public, not just as I did in the surgical suite, for example, or teaching medical students or nurses, but more formalize this. And it's interesting that I think there's been a more broad-based interest in this whole concept of caring communication throughout the country. The Golds in New Jersey at Rutgers, the Schwartz Center at the Mass General have established means by which we think about issues that perhaps weren't as openly discussed in the past. The physician you described is certainly familiar to all of us that are your age and my age. But do you think that current physicians who are active are being a good role model? Has the role model changed or improved? I think it's distinctly improved. If you look at the numbers that are even published in the newspaper, there was a piece on how well does your doctor communicate with you? And the number surveyed was some huge number of people. And two-thirds of the folks that were surveyed felt that indeed communication was at least adequate. There was nothing glaring either by omission or commission in those shared experiences. But, you know, I think we think we talk well as professionals, but we don't really always measure what we say or how we say it 
and we may think we're doing well, but oftentimes, if we're open to feedback, we can recognize there are sometimes better ways to say what we're trying to say. How do you learn these skills, though? I think medical practice uh, still is learning on your feet as you go. And I don't know that it happens de novo. I think it happens because of being open. For example, sharing bad news is oftentimes a very complicated matter. How do you introduce a subject? Do you engage the family? From my past experience as a surgeon, when you come out of the operating room, if you have some difficult things to share, do you do it in a public setting? Do you move into a private room to talk about something perhaps a little more complicated? Do you sit and listen as well as talk? You and I both know that the average time before we interfere with someone's shared thoughts may be as short as 20 seconds in the medical setting. And now that these issues are being looked at more thoughtfully, and rather than there being an external threat, you must change. But really, considering that most people are motivated to go into medicine because they're interested in reaching out in the broadest sense, doing good, I think doing good includes how we share information, and that's at the critical juncture of our interface with other human beings. Do you think this might have something to do with the doctor changing from the paternalistic figure that he was to respecting patients' autonomy at the same time as women's rights, civil rights, war in Vietnam came to the forefront? We began to recognize that patients really had certain rights and autonomy. I think that's an excellent observation, and I think it's very real. The Vietnam War, since both of us served at that point in time, it sort of was a maturation episode in American history. And the Geheimrat system, the European model of there being a sort of a titular head of a given service who commanded authority just because of the nature of his or her position, has changed remarkably. And I think the women's movement has brought that about. The concept of autonomy, I think, emerged as a is something a little bit further down the line, and I think was linked to matters of clinical ethics that began with the baby doe experience of, what, 25 or so years ago. But I do think that we became, as they said in those days, more Europeanized by the experiences that we as a country were are brought into. If you're just tuning in, this is Ethics with Maury on ReachMD XM Channel 233, and our guest is Dr. Avram Kraft. Dr. Kraft has been speaking with us about his mission to elevate the level of caring communication and ethical awareness within our medical community. I know you're involved in a hospital unit and see consultations. Do you feel in this particular setting that autonomy and patients' wishes and family wishes are playing a new role, especially as our population ages? I think the matter of autonomy is in sometimes individual, sometimes cultural, sometimes even religious-based. That is to say that although conceptually we in the medical practice of the year 2007 may feel as if individuals have autonomy, that's all based on how well-informed they are, for example, as a starting point. If somebody chooses to cultivate an interaction with their patients by 
being selective in what they choose to tell and not tell? Are they really allowing the individual to make an autonomous decision? Are they really well enough informed to do that? And that's further colored, for example, if we're dealing with elderly parents. You know, mom and dad really don't know how to integrate the kind of information you tell me you want to share with them. So this is the son from Idaho who's a lawyer who comes in from out of town and says this. Um, I'd prefer that you don't tell mom or dad about this. So how are mom and dad going to make an appropriate decision for themselves? So how would you respond to that with a patient who is still competent? I think a an individual who's capable of independent decision-making should be included in the decision about how much they want to know. I think if someone says, my son has always been my advisor, he knows what my choices are, I'd prefer that the decisions be made in my best interest, but outside of my choice directly, I would honor that because I see no reason to browbeat somebody. And in a situation where that's not what they're equipped for or ready to do, and I think that would be a misadventure at best. Does that help put it in perspective? At the end of life, when somebody wants to maybe get their house in order, don't you think that they might need to know all the facts so that they can come to closure with certain issues that if they didn't have all the facts, they might miss an opportunity? I think that's an engaging question. And I think it's something that should begin, actually, and you as an internist, I think, have an acute feeling for this. I do believe that we should begin this dialogue of individual choices in life circumstances um, that lead to then a discussion about end-of-life choices, we should make those selective interactions begin hopefully many years beforehand. Surely if there's going to be a longitudinal experience between a physician and a patient, particularly in the primary care specialties and internal medicine. You know, we as part of our customary interaction with our patients today want to have you think about things and then perhaps giving an individual a handout. I'm sure every state has something like that. There are certain religious denominations that have their own. And what this does is allow an opportunity for someone to think at least about what their choices might be. If that's hidden information, you're right. If someone defers talking about the seriousness of a given illness, it's problematic. On the other hand, the concern that I experience oftentimes is the matter of a son or a daughter saying, you know, I don't really want to talk about this. And I think the obligation in that setting is then to say, well, can I help you talk to me about it. We don't have to talk about your folks yet, but let's you and I talk about this. A lot of people have fears that if they talk about something, it's somehow magically going to be influential in what an outcome may be. I think it's very hard for subspecialists who don't have longitudinal experiences with people necessarily to have those kinds of conversations. I have both been troubled by the people who do have advanced directives and have taken all of these steps that you and I have touched on, and then their wishes at the end of life are not recognized. I know it's a big question, but in closing, could you tell us something that can be done to avoid the ignoring of advanced directives and living wells? 
I think it begins with a family member saying to their kids or their significant other or whomever it is that's going to represent them as a proxy to say, you know, these are choices that I've made and I'd like to have them honored. It's important to me that you do that. Oftentimes those conversations don't take place when they don't take place. Then the surrogate who may have their own particular biases make selective choices that they feel in their own mind are in the patient's best interest, but which really are their interests. So once again, we've come back to communication, both doctor-patient and family-patient. This has been Ethics with Maury on ReachMDXM. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Avram Kraft from the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University and the Center for Compassion and Medical Care for sharing his views on communication and ethical awareness. We have another great segment coming up soon. Please stay tuned.